Hello, and welcome to season two of Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we plan imaginary dinner parties for cultural luminaries and their dream guests. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, an author and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. By popular request, this will be a whole season of dinner parties, and we have some truly exciting guests coming on, both real and imagined. Don't we, Emma? Do we ever. Mon, do you want to tell us about today's guests? I know you're particularly excited about them. Yes, because our friend, the brilliant producer Catherine Fish, that's spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E, has chosen to bring her namesake, Catherine Hepburn, who happens to be one of my favorite style icons pretty much ever. Um, I have her on a lot of mood boards, and I found it really exciting to delve into her the details of her life because you kind of know you love these people, but you don't necessarily think to, to, to research them on this level. So this podcast is an absolute nerd's fantasy. Catherine Fish is a development executive specializing in documentaries for the past decade. She's developed a range of projects from travelogues and art programming to films about gun control and fertility rights for major broadcasters in the U.S. and the U.K. Catherine, or Kate, is currently a development exec at Hidden Light, a production company founded by Hillary and Chelsea Clinton. And as a side note, this is our first namesake episode, hopefully of many. I have developed probably the most raging girl crush of my adult life as a result of my research for this episode. Catherine Hepburn popularized not only wide-legged trousers, but basically being intelligent while female. And so, you know, I'm a big fan. What's not to love? She also holds the record for the most Oscar wins by a single individual of all time at four. And yes, that is more than Meryl Streep, who is currently coming in at three wins. So just in case you're not really familiar with Katherine Hepburn, uh, she was active as an actress from 1928 all the way till 1995. She was an indomitable American stage and film actress known for her spirited performances with a touch of eccentricity. She introduced it to her roles as sort of strength of character that was previously considered kind of undesirable in Hollywood for leading ladies. And as an actress, she was noted for her sort of brisk attitude and tomboyish beauty. She had this sort of like stark, posh New England accent that, um, and, and not shrill, but like direct voice that at first some people struggled with and then it kind of becomes addictive. Wait a minute, is that the door? We're so happy to see you. Or should I say Catherine? Oh, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Please, could you tell us who you are bringing to dinner? I'm bringing Catherine Hepburn, uh, who is my namesake. And the reason why half the emails that are sent to me never arrive because of that second (laughs) A, the New England spelling. But despite having an annoying name, she's a, a fashion icon and she was a total trailblazer and a kind of early feminist and just an incredible woman who both my mom and I are obsessed with. So I thought there'd be no one better in this dinner party setting where you can bring someone back from the dead than to bring her back. Yeah. Like my, you've transformed my life because this is really (laughs) shameful, but I'm going to admit it. I had never seen a single Catherine Hepburn movie until you selected 
the great Kate as our guest for today's pod. And I have been in the best K-hole, that's a Hepburn, <laughs> Hepburn hole, imaginable for the last week. Some of my all-time favorite movies, I think, are ones that I've just watched thanks to this. So if anyone listening, like me, has not seen a Katherine Hepburn movie or perhaps has not seen enough, uh, I highly recommend that you follow along and then check out the show notes where we will mention all of the movies that we talk about because they are extraordinary. Um, she's been credited with transforming the role of women in cinema. So she was kind of a rare persona in the golden age of Hollywood when the industry's most bankable actresses were a bit were sort of like limp and super feminine and soft-spoken and submissive, right? As far as I can tell, Catherine was known for being strong-willed and outspoken primarily, perhaps even before her obviously striking beauty and style. As one journalist that I read put it, uh, she was known to take a cold shower well into her 80s because it was, quote, character building. <laughs> um, so Catherine was born into this very political family of intellectuals. Her father was a wealthy, prominent doctor in New England, and her mother was an outspoken suffragette. Uh, who was way ahead of her time and would take Catherine to feminist rallies from a young age and I think was a campaigner for birth control very early on. But Kate, what draws you to Catherine, obviously, other than the, the, the obvious namesake stuff? Like, how did you first get interested in her? I think I slightly, because I was introduced to her at such a young age, because my mom has always loved her, I think I slightly took for granted how pioneering she was. And in a way, maybe that was sort of a good thing. She was kind of like a foundation of what I thought a normal woman was. As in like a, a normal woman in Hollywood, mm. I didn't see that there was anything kind of exceptional about how strong she was or the way that kind of gender relations were in her life and, and the kind of relationship between her and Spencer Tracy's character. Most of the time I, I just sort of, was so used to her characters and watching her growing up that I didn't really realize how revolutionary she was until actually really recently. Um, and it's only really been sort of re-watching it. And, and I think the more interested I got in her and the more that I've been sort of reading about her life as well, I think she's such an icon. And later in life, she was so uh, sort of worshipped by Hollywood, but actually her journey through the industry was so tumultuous and she faced so many barriers and people slammed the door in her face so often. And it really shows you just how she really not just ruffled people's feathers, but like outraged people by by her feminism and, and really her strength. Like, I think that's what people really almost resented about her at certain times in her career. And and so that is a reason why I continue to love her. But I think, to be honest, at the beginning of my relationship with her, I just sort of loved her movies and thought that she was like gorgeous and fantastic. And, and it's only now that I realize what a pioneer she is. Okay, that's amazing. Not for the first time in my life, I am taking notes from your mother, Connie Sudhima, <laughs> who's brilliant. <laughs> I want to talk about likability because, Kate, you brought up this notion of her uh, getting, well, you didn't say she got on people's nerves, but she did say that. She said it about herself. I think I irritate people. Uh, and again, you know, we've mentioned this, but she was not considered, you know, for the time, she was not at all considered a sex object, quote unquote. And in Hollywood, where a big part of the point is to make audiences fall in love with both romantic leads, 
especially back in the day when there were no, you know, streamers serving niche content to niche long tail people. There were only major studios making major movies that were meant to appeal to everyone, no matter the shape of their state. Um, how did this woman who was clearly educated and, you know, upper crust and snooty, a Bryn Mawr girl, et cetera, like all these things that people thought about her, you know, how did she make America fall in love with her? Um, I have a theory, but I want to hear Kate's. Kate's thoughts on that. So the optimist in me, because apparently, so I, this is another thing I didn't realize until recently was that she was, she kind of, even though her start was in the thirties, audiences really soured against her. They thought that she was like arrogant and kind of high and mighty. And, and she barked at her co-leads and she wasn't how a real woman should be. And, and she massively fell out of favor and really had to kind of fight her way back onto screens. And, and she's always sort of had that relationship with audiences and with the press, but she has still managed to kind of rise above it and stay on our screens. And And I think that the optimist in me hopes that it's because most people are drawn to that strength, whether or not they know it, there's something magnetic and admirable about her and that people want to see someone who can fight back and and fight their own corner and and that even though there were a lot of people who sort of said back then that that they didn't think she was a real woman I'd like to think that maybe one of the reasons why people still loved her and she still had an audience was because there is something inherently admirable about someone like that regardless of their gender and 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 eventually that just sort of beat people down into loving her but I that might be a really naive thing to say but I I don't know. Maybe it was, I think she always, well, not always, but she picked really great roles as well. And, and I do think, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say actually why people loved her. I mean, she is beautiful and and there's the glamour in her films and she always had very popular male co-stars. I hope that's not the reason why she stayed on screen for as long as she did. But I think that probably helped through her unpopular periods. Um, but yeah, I'd like to think it's that people inevitably are charmed by her strength. I'll be hard to handle. I promise you that. Okay, I really like that optimist answer. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try and be the counterpoint, the pessimistic. I think so it has to do with, in my mind, this notion of kind of the tough fragile. Um and I think she expertly was able to merge kind of the head with the heart, but I think she pivoted toward that very consciously. So she played up the heart and she played up the fragility. Um, and in so doing, she improved her likability rating um, through her kind of what I call her Amelia Bedelia style ineptitudes. I don't know if you've ever read those Amelia mm. Bedelia books about the maid who's like, you know, yeah, she's meant to make a sponge cake and she puts sponge in the cake, you know, that kind of thing. Listen to that. It's my night, Sammy. All mine, Sammy. And you can't give it your well-known whammy. The nominated committee consisting of Miss Vaughn Vickers, Miss Vi Langford, and Miss Kate Johnson were unanimous. And I think, you know, in the kitchen scene in Women of Women of oh, the Year. Oh yeah, for example, the waffle. Right? Or in life in general, in bringing up baby, 
there's this conscious attempt, I think, to kind of declaw herself in the eyes of the romantic lead. And then as a result of the American public by being this sort of, you know, she's but but there's something, you know, what female artist doesn't have to be self-deprecating to be liked. Right. And I think. Deborah Levy talks, Kate, you had recommended the Deborah Levy books to me initially, and she talks about that so well. Uh, and I don't think there's shame in it. And I even think that in the time of her comeback with the Philadelphia story, she was able to kind of move toward a less slapstick, less self-deprecating version of herself as, you know, she did win people over with her strength, as you put it. But I think there was a period there when she was considered box office poison because she was too smart. And her way of, I think, counteracting that was to play up her kind of like, oh, I can't cook. I don't know how to percolate coffee. Oh, you know. So I did read something where someone had talked about how audiences like woman of the year and and those kind of scenes where she's being inept at sort of basic womanly things um, that that some audiences or they felt like that had appeal to audiences because they sort of wanted to see her get her like quote unquote comeuppance. And I definitely think there's an element of that. And especially with some of the Spencer Tracy films. And I know that people talk about how in some ways their real life relationship mirrored some of that, that she was never the kind of person to sort of look after someone, but with him she was, and she put her career on hold for quite a long time to kind of, look after him because of his alcoholism and his depression and that sometimes you can see that in her films but then I think with with some of her most popular movies later in her life like African Queen she doesn't have you know she falls in love and she's no longer the sort of matron character that she was at the beginning but that strength is really continued through most of the film except I guess that one scene where she's being swarmed by a million mosquitoes which quite frankly is like my nightmare scenario but um I think in that film, she's continuously strong. And that was one of her most popular films. And I don't know if people found that more palatable because she was older in The African Queen. But I think as she gets older, and maybe it's just the times were changing a bit as well, but but she she no longer feels the need to to have her characters sort of have those inept moments. You're right. You're right. It was almost like a mountain she had to climb. And then once she had climbed it, she was able to sort of stay at the peak for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I can make coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or better yet, make it for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't need to make my own coffee. That's more like it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oui, mais moi, je vais seul, car personne ne m'aime. Mais jours comme mes And it's interesting you guys mentioned the Philadelphia story comeback and it really was her big comeback movie but it's quite wild the way it came about um, because Howard Hughes uh, produced it having or bought the rights to it having just asked her uh, hand in marriage this would have been her second marriage her first one didn't really last very long and it doesn't seem like she was ever really that into it to be honest she got married when she was 22 anyway Howard Hughes was absolutely chasing her around um for a while and she kind of just she just she just said she'd rather ultimately said that she'd rather just be on her own which was again like very rare for her um for her time but also the Philadelphia story comeback was actually made 
in a way, it's like this horribly ironic thing because it was made possible in a way by Howard Hughes trying to get her to agree to marry him and therefore buying the rights and giving her all sorts of power on the film set when she had been in this uh, sort of slight, really bad place in her career. Um, and so, it. But 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 I suppose it comes out nicely in the end because her sort of... Uh, independence and feminism created the situation in which he was completely obsessed with her and trying to get, you know, earn her favor. And it did ultimately indirectly, or I guess quite directly, create this comeback situation. I don't think she calculated it, though. Or maybe she did. She did. So apparently she had... She, because she was seen as this like box office poison and, and in the studio days, right. like, the, you know, studios basically owned you. And she bought out right. her her contract with the studio and then bought the rights to the play of Philadelphia Story, did uh, the play on Broadway. And then Howard Hughes came along and said, uh, oh, I'll buy you the movie rights, right. which she may have been like, well, I don't really need you to do that because I've already got the stage rights. But sure. Um, so I think she did design it and probably okay. would have done it anyways but but allowed Glad. him to pay for the film rights which you know if she wasn't that into him you know maybe she just thought well you you've got enough money you can do it <laughs> I think that's what I mean that's how I read it yeah this is you know her first movie is 1932 uh the years of box office poison that we're talking about are very early on in her career this was you know the late 1930s bringing up baby was a hit but there were a few films in there that were flops and her kind of haughtiness and her snootiness and all of that was starting to put people off pretty early on in her career so she you know did the smart thing and escaped to the stage the playwright of the philadelphia story uh, philip barry actually wrote that role specifically with hepburn in mind and she played it on stage to enormous acclaim and then yeah as you guys are saying she bought the motion picture rights and headed back to Hollywood where she sold them to MGM on the condition that she would star in the film. And then she single-handedly regenerated her film career with her mass appeal. And what I think is so interesting re-likeability is in the Philadelphia story, I don't think she panders at all. She's almost a parody of, you know, what they must have thought of her because the character she's playing is so you know, unbelievably kind of, she's the heiress and she's beautiful and she's haughty and she's all of the things that we're supposed to hate about Catherine Hepburn. And yet she's lovable. Even the fact that the two, you know, that the man she, you know, Cary Grant, who she ends up with at the end of the film, sorry, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Philadelphia Story, it's not my problem. I'm going to spoil the end of it for you. It's been out for ages. The fact that the whole way through the film, and I guess her kind of, maybe some audiences would have seen it as her kind of comeuppance when Cary Grant and her father talk about her as being this kind of cold goddess who's unfeeling and has no sympathy for human frailty. But at the same time, Cary Grant still loves her and marries her at the end. And it's sort of, she doesn't, even though she has this realization that maybe kind of being a bit sort of sensitive to imperfection in other people is not a bad trait to have but the fact that you know Cary Grant marries her in the end and he doesn't want her to change and he kind of sees her as she is and I think that's a huge kind of vindication of of the idea that yes she's sort of haughty and big-headed and people might not like her for it but actually she kind of gets her happily 
ever after and she she finds someone who loves her for who she is true mm. oh it's such a good film uh mon before you dress us i just have to i i came across this quote apparently once a crowd was chasing her for an autograph and she said beat it go sit on attack and they replied <laughs> <laughs> they said we made you and she said, like hell you did, <laughs> which I think is so. She was just really in control. Yeah. I mean, actually, I wanted to come back to the box office poison as as it's referred to phase, because there's another reading of that that I have read on the Internet uh, several times now, but which is that she like so you can look at it through a kind of gender identity lens. Um, I mean, she was some people argue that she was just too masculine. There's also a whole like, and I don't want to go like deep into the gossip of Hollywood here, but there's like a whole group of people that believe that Catherine Hepburn was bisexual and that her, many of her public relationships were in fact put on and uh, she was actually into women most of the time and all of this. And, and, and it is true that like Hollywood, it just shows again how ahead of her time she was. But I really cynically think that part of it was that Hollywood was just not ready for this like more masculine woman who was on the side, you know, and she and she said it to her, herself. Let me just find the quote. She said, um, and this is about, you know, all, all sorts of feminists feeling that she had and what she did with her life but she said uh i love this quote she described her own life saying i have not lived as a woman i have lived as a man i have done just what i damn well wanted and made enough money to support myself and i ain't afraid of being alone well that was so revolutionary at the time and i just think that it was off-putting to people who were not who were it was it was a different time but also to be honest i think that a lot of people would find that like controversial today if a woman said I make my own money I do whatever the hell I want and I don't care about being alone like people people today would would there are people who would think that that was like kind of revolution that's taboo for women to say I don't care about being with anyone or having kids or like it's still taboo and and she was born in like 1907 you know it's she was so ahead of her time and kind of unapologetically so and you know, she was against like McCarthyism and she just, yeah, she, she was not afraid to say how she thought it was. Kate, you had said, if we only watch one movie, it should be woman of the year. Um, And when I watched that, it touched so many nerves. I mean, as you say, like this, I cannot believe that movie was, what was it? 1938 or something. It was a very long time ago and it was incredibly relevant today. But it's also sort of, I, so woman of the year, I feel like is a really important film for her because it was one of the first ones where she's just kind of unapologetically that character. But there is stuff that makes me quite uncomfortable about that. And that's obviously a kind of revisionist look at it because at the time it was seen as really revolutionary. But but that compared to something like Adam's Rib, which is, I think, probably only like 10 years before Adam's Rib. But the difference it was actually 1942, of, the, a woman of the year. Woman of the year. And yeah. then was Adam's Rib like 49? Or maybe it was only five years later. But it it's Adam's Rib is much, she's much less 
apologetic. And I think Woman of the Year, there's all that kind of, you know, oh, I can't make waffles or make coffee. And then at the end, she says, you know, I'll quit. I'll I'll just be a wife. And and Spencer Tracy's character in it is a bit kind of pathetic, isn't he? And and I think it's a really important film. But I, I personally, I actually prefer. I find Adam's Rib more satisfying. And maybe that's just because it kind of is the story that I want rather than... No, no, Kate, you're totally... And the thing is, so in Woman of the Year, Spencer Tracy plays this sports reporter and he's kind of like an everyman. And she's this rising star, this political journalist who speaks every language under the sun and is, you know in close touch with everyone who's important. And, you know, she has this man secretary who Spencer Tracy is very competitive with. And (laughs) it's a funny dynamic because she's the breadwinner and, you know, spoiler, obviously they fall in love. The chemistry between them is insane. Um, But there's Mm. this discrepancy. She's like, clearly, you know, he's marrying up and he knows it and we all know it. And it's really awkward. Uh, And at one point, is it him who says women should be kept illiterate and clean like canaries? Someone says that. And it's my favorite thing ever. Oh, God, I don't know (laughs) if that was him. I don't remember Maybe it wasn't him. It was a really good line, though. Uh, Another thing that made me very uncomfortable, side note, is that he calls his mother dear on the phone and then later tests her character calls her dad darling and i was like what is this that's so weird but when she ultimately wins woman of the year he says you're not a woman at all and kate's right there's like this really you Mm. know horrible conflict between them and then she tries to make herself as womanly as possible and he sort of tells her okay i want you to be a middle ground like that's you know She is a bit one-dimensional. Yeah, she's just a bit one, you know, she's like really on, there's this scene where because she's a sort of um, international reporter and it's during World War II and she is working for this organization that works with Greek orphans. And there's this bit in the film, this kind of bizarre side plot where she brings home a Greek orphan and she just really doesn't care about this little boy and I feel as though stuff like that is really trying to paint her as this very one-dimensional character and then she hears her uh, a sort of she goes to a wedding and the words of the priest move her and then she basically decides to give it all up for love and become a totally different person and and I guess in the end you know Spencer Tracy sort of says to her you don't need to go that way but but it it just it it feels a a little bit one-dimensional her character in that Totally. But that push and pull of like, what are you? Are you a working woman or are you a maternal woman who's good at making waffles? Like, which are you? You know, yeah. that <laughs> is still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it definitely is. They're showing a lot of florals right now. So I was thinking like florals for spring. Groundbreaking. I'm going to cut in here because if Catherine Hepburn is coming to dinner, everyone has got to be looking their best. And um, we need to we need to start planning our wardrobes. OK, so I know you both actually I feel like you both actually have quite Catherine Hepburn-esque style as it stands. Stop it. That's oh, the I'm nicest not- thing you've ever said. And I don't think it's true of me. It's true of Emma. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's definitely true of you, Kate. <laughs> I've definitely seen both of you in like a great wide-legged trouser. So I'm not going to micromanage, but do you want to know what I'm planning on wearing Mm. and some of the background? Yes, please. Okay. So I think, okay, I'll tell you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I think the key take-home message of Hepburn's style is, again, that she kind of bestowed this confidence on women to wear what they felt good in, 
even if it kind of shocked people, maybe rubbed some people the wrong way, um, which I know it might sound like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill today. But for example, having the confidence to wear those super elegant as uh, pantsuits and trousers with very little makeup, I might add, and a lot of like top bun, messy top buns um, was really big deal in her day. So how exactly would we describe Catherine's style? Well, so she's born in New England, so there's a real East Coast sportswear vibe to it. Um, and she was, by the way, an excellent athlete by all accounts, a very keen tennis player. She played every single morning. And apparently she only bought tops with large armholes for movement. <laughs> um, Catherine also wore thick white American sports socks, both on and off the tennis court, which I love. That's kind of back in style today. And she yeah, is amazing. And, and, and white Nikes. And she's commonly referred to, of course, as the fa- in the fashion world as the, um, well, a, if not the pioneer of the American sportswear aesthetic. She was so, so for example, she was a key muse to Calvin Klein, among others. And she definitely informed some of the like Ralph Lauren vibe as well. So, as we've discussed, not everyone was a fan of her style early in her career. Um, a woman who dressed and acted like a man well into her 20s couldn't be written off as a tomboy phase. And But, you know, look at how she kind of pushed that look into the forefront. And then now everyone copies it without even realizing they did. Um, okay, so I think for our dinner party, we probably want to go with... Maybe a slightly more Catherine style tailored look because she was famous for her suits. There's, you know, those famous black and white photos of her perching on the side of a. I, I love, I love her physicality. I was watching a, the interview she did um, when she was about sixty with Dick Cavett, it, which you can find on YouTube, by the way. It's amazing, and she insisted on having a coffee table that she could that was solid enough to perch her legs on she I'm quite like this actually <laughs> I hate just sitting with my legs underneath um the a desk much to Emma and Joel's uh, chagrin on this podcast because it means I move all around my mic but I find it easier to concentrate when you're kind of like sitting the wrong way on a chair and um and there's a lot of imagery of her doing this in these incredibly elegantly tailored suits so there's a sort of juxtaposition there apparently she uh had all her suits made by eddie schmidt the beverly hills tailor who made also made suits for clark gable um and her long-term lover spencer tracy and also when she was in london she was known to stop by savile row to order trousers rumored three sizes too big um, and she's quoted as having said that she liked when they billowed like a ship's sail when she walked. Um, and then obviously you could pair that with a starched white shirt, which always looks really elegant, tucked in that she was famous for as well. Um, oh, and one more thing, as Catherine aged, she integrated more and more men's turtlenecks into her look, which is a look I love. And it can be worn kind of, well, it depends what season we're doing our dinner party in, but it could be worn even under a, a starched white shirt, which could look very trendy, but very Catherine-esque at the same time. But guys, I don't know, like, do are you with me on this? Or do you think we should be going, we should be going for a different sort of style? Maybe she's going to think we're weird for just dressing exactly like her. Well, one of my favorite 
like facts about Catherine Hepburn is based uh, when she died, she endowed her wardrobe. So not just her personal collection, but all the costumes that she took home from her various films to uh, Kent State University. And I was looking at the, my mom was, has like the catalog of it. And I was looking through the catalog. One of the things they had a sort of itemized list of all the things that she'd given. And part of it was 60 pairs of tailored trousers in various shades of tan, which I just think is like the most unbelievable number of beige tailored trousers. Um, So I do feel like that is a legitimate thing to wear. But I do, but then I love like um, Adam's Rib, which is one of my favorite of hers. The suits that she wears in court, I think they're all kind of like Chaparelli style from that era but there's one scene in Adam's Rib basically Adam's Rib she and Spencer Tracy play two lawyers she's the defense in a trial of a woman who's uh charged with shooting her cheating husband and Spencer Tracy is the prosecutor and so it becomes this like battle of the sexes um but they have this scene where they're having a dinner party and people come right and this is just like a dinner party in their apartment and she's wearing this black silk dress and the whole bit in that scene is that yes. he comes late and he's bought her this hat which is why he's running late but everyone's arriving and she's kind of running around and she needs this guy who's always inappropriately flirting with her and kind of is obsessed with her uh much to Spencer Tracy's frustration uh and she needs him to kind of button up the back of her dress but it's just this incredible like black silk strapless ball gown that she's wearing to her dinner party at home um with these sort of buttons at the back it's so beautiful so I feel like if we're having a dinner party for Catherine Hepburn we should maybe make an extra effort and wear ball gowns I agree I agree I think that you are I think that dress would look really really good on you that's an amazing idea Kate do you know what's interesting is she seems so tall but she was only five seven and a half which is like my height it's not short but it's not that tall I would have guessed like five eleven she looks so tall. That's incredible. In her time, and I know because my grandmother was about the same height and she was considered like a giant. <laughs> um, that was really, really tall. Yeah. Does that mean that also Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and Humphrey Bogart and Spencer Tracy, were they all actually really short like, as well? Really not very tall. I don't think it doesn't appear as though they were very tall at all. Guys, I have a really self-interested question. Was Catherine Hepburn a ginger? Because she gets called red in the Philadelphia story by Cary Grant's character. Yeah, kind of. Oh my gosh. She, she was definitely like had freckles. kind of auburn. I think she'd be described as auburn. Although I do think she was, but it's, it was African Queen her first movie in color? I don't know. Uh, it's a bit hard to tell in that. She looks more kind of like brownie, blonde, but she's older in that. And she's always like really dirty in African queens. It's hard to tell. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to go with her being a ginger because that makes me feel really good. And I think I'm going to need you both to help me because I really want to achieve the side part front poof with decorative comb look that she wears in all of the 30s and early 40s movies. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's all I've With the of. little curl. I think that yeah. would look really good. Yeah, with the like kind of, how does she do the side curl as well? It's like a poof with a clip and then it's a kind the of best. ringlet, but it's not like a ringlet. Yeah. No, and it looks so, it looks so casual, even though it's like mm. clearly very done. So I think it's going to take all three of us and like several hours and a few martinis to get this happening for me. But 
it's it's what I want. Okay. I feel okay. I agree. It's so flattering on the face. I feel like there's some backcombing involved. You would say that. And I know that in the university. <laughs> Guys, I went through a really, really intense phase where I could not run a brush through my hair for like three years. But I, I swear I'm not, I've come off of the addiction, but I think that's what's going on here. Or she just had a lot of volume in her hair. Like maybe it was kind of curly-ish. But is that possible when she was swimming every morning? I don't know. I guess she wore a bathing cap. And playing tennis. Maybe it's just quite dirty and that's what gives it its volume. Oh, I'm willing yeah. to try Is that anything. the secret? <laughs> um, but Emma, like, she definitely had tons of freckles. If you see pictures of her without makeup. And she says it in that same Dick Cavett interview that I'm obsessed with. Um, she keeps saying, oh, you're going to go red. She's poking fun at him and she says, oh, you're going to go redder than I am. Like implying that she is ginger. I love it. She I love is it. Ginger. I love it. One of us. Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. Well, so I have to plan where this is taking place, guys, and what we're eating. I have a really good idea for where we should have the party, and I would like your buy-in. Do you think she'd feel comfortable with us hosting it at her house in Fenwick, Connecticut? Because as we know, she grew up going there every summer from when she was five. And then she would, it was her refuge and her sanctuary. And when she was filming, she would retreat there after um, it was destroyed in a hurricane in 1938. And she rebuilt it uh, in 1939 and lived there until her death at 96 in 2003. So I think it's the place she feels most comfortable. If if you can wrangle us an invite, I... I would definitely fly over for that. Do you think it's the size of the house in Philadelphia story? Because then we could just set it up. She might not even notice we're there. Oh, we could be in the South Parlor waiting. (laughs) The Southeast facing talking parlor. (laughs) Bon appétit. Guys, I think in terms of menu... Um, we know what an athlete she was. I obsessively Googled her dietary preferences and found very little except for a quote. Uh, apparently she once told a journalist from the observer that she denies herself nothing. She said, I think what you should eat is perfectly obvious. I don't care to eat those things. So I don't, we live in an era of making a great deal out of very little. They make a big deal out of diets. I've never been on a diet in my life. So, you know, she clearly was not hung up on the food thing, which is great. 
I think breakfast for dinner as an homage to women of the year, but also because who doesn't love breakfast for dinner? You're busy. You're going, going all day. You get home. Yeah. Boiled eggs with toast soldiers, some expertly percolated coffee, years of practice, and of course, waffles. I have a really good pancake recipe that I'll adapt, and I will be sure not to include an entire brick of yeast, lest life begin to imitate (laughs) art a little too closely. Um, What do you guys think of that? I like it. Sounds delicious. Also, in Woman of the Year, isn't one of the scenes where Spencer Tracy's like almost had enough uh, when he has to make bacon and eggs for her and her her assistant? Her male secretary, yes. And he's so angry about it. <laughs> and like so resent. Also in I think that's a good idea. And also in um in Adam's Rib, they have there's loads of kind of cooking scenes in that movie, but they're always making quite weird things. So there's one scene where they're making dinner, but then kind of halfway through cooking, they sit down and they eat half a cantaloupe, which I thought <laughs> as something you just eat before your dinner is quite an odd, but that does feel like that m- works with the breakfast for dinner theme. Oh, that's perfect. That'll bring our, yeah, our fruit and veg content. They do that in France. <laughs> no, I just, have been, I have been served cantaloupe before a meal before. In what, just half a cantaloupe? France. Not half a cantaloupe. <laughs> no, no melon, like, me- like, is it called melon in English? Just orange melon? Without the prosciutto. Yeah, no, some people just eat it. They're like, hmm, what a delice. I mean, hmm. it is a delice. Why not? I mean, it goes really well with the waffles. Yeah, no, I like it in this context. I have the best idea ever for dessert because I found out that brownies were her favorite and she even had a recipe, which was mailed to the New York Times in a letter to the editor in 2003, the week after she died. Okay, this is a really crazy anecdote. Wow. I'm going to tell you as quickly as I can. So when she was in New York, she had this townhouse and she would run into the same man at the grocery store all the time. Uh, and they sort of, you know, hello kind of thing. And he had a daughter who was at Bryn Mawr College and she came home for a holiday before her senior year and said to her dad, I'm dropping out. I don't want to finish. And he knew that Catherine Hepburn had gone to Bryn Mawr. And so he dropped a letter in her townhouse's mailbox asking her to intervene. <laughs> and at 7.30 a.m. the next day, the phone rings and it's Catherine, her commanding voice saying, is this the young woman who wants to quit Bryn Mawr? Uh, and so the woman answered no. and, she, you know, Catherine said, what a damn stupid thing to do. And she went on to give her a lively lecture, apparently, the gist of which was that she had to finish her studies and get her degree. And after that, she could do whatever she wanted. And apparently there was just no arguing with her imperiousness. So she and then she offered to meet this young woman for tea. So this young woman and Catherine Hepburn have tea. The young woman finishes Bryn Mawr and the father and Catherine Hepburn become friends to the point that when Catherine Hepburn was later injured in a car accident, he brought her brownies. And she let him know afterwards that his brownies were not very good, that he put too much flour in the recipe. And she gave him her recipe for brownies, uh, which only includes a quarter cup of flour and includes chopped walnuts and the best cocoa you can find. And anyway, it was like a very simple brownie recipe, but far superior to the one that he had made for her. And as a result, he and his daughter had this brownie recipe on hand to send to the New York Times when she died. So that's how we are in possession of Catherine Hepburn's famous brownie recipe. And I will be making it and trying really hard not to mess it up. 
Oh my God, that's such Glorious. a good story. Do you think that they only dared send her recipe to a newspaper after she died? Otherwise, I think she'd so. have, like cut them. I, I mean, honestly, yeah, yeah I think definitely. so. <laughs> also, uh, I really recommend, we're going to link to the recipe in the show notes. You absolutely need to read the first comment on this recipe. It's like the best comment I've ever seen. So oh. just leave it at that. I'm so curious now. So before she comes, I think I should tell you my other favorite Catherine Hepburn story, which is um, apparently, I don't know when this would have been. It must have been pretty early in her career, but she was going to the studio to film something and she walked in wearing jeans and everyone was so scandalized and furious and shocked that she would dare wear blue jeans. So when she started filming and she was in her costume, someone snuck into her dressing room and confiscated the jeans so that she wouldn't wear them anymore. What? And so when she got back to her dressing room and saw they were gone, she thought, well, this is ridiculous. And she walked around the studio in her underwear until someone gave them back to her. (laughs) Which I thought was so good. She just did not, like, if she saw something stupid, then she just called it out as stupid and she didn't care. She had no kind of, like no qualms about, you know, getting her ass out. (laughs) (laughs) Obsessed with her. Oh, wait. I think I hear her coming up the stairs. Is that the door? Action stations. Places, Ah! places. (laughs) Places, places. Well, that was a dinner to remember. Uh, it sure was. Thank you to both great Kates for joining us. And um, to our producers, Joel Grove and Matt Bentley-Viney, thank you as always. And to you for listening. And thank you, Monica, because now I get to, my trousers and I are going to billow off into the sunset. <laughs> Three sizes. Bye-bye. Three Toodle. sizes. <laughs> Three Toodle. sizes too big. Bye-bye. That's all.